Hello everybody, welcome to episode 2 of the Forward Together podcast, series 3. My name is Jared Dean, I work for Hollywell Trust. Joined as always by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm grand, Jared. How are you? Hi, dead on. Hi, dead on. Enjoying these conversations that you, you've carried out with people. Um, do you want to tell us who we have today? Uh, we are meeting with Duncan Morrow, who is a senior academic with Ulster University, and who's also the former chief executive of the Community Relations Council, which is... Uh, financing these podcasts. And Duncan is always an individual that has a lot of very interesting things to say about Northern Ireland. Yeah, I, I always find Duncan fascinating. I think it's also important to point out that he's a member of the Alliance Party as well, and I think ran for election on at least one occasion for them. Um, but not, he's not on in that capacity here today. Your conversation, as always, as I say, with Duncan was really, really fascinating um i think trust is one of the things it's the theme that came up on the last episode that we did with simon Ho- simon hoare and again today duncan refers to trust yes and it is if if you like it's the you know it's the big fault gap in our society and our political system isn't it which is the fact that we have people who are obliged to govern jointly who not only don't like each other but don't trust each other and that is the big question of how we can get over that or if we can get over that. Yeah. And Duncan refers to the Good Friday Agreement as a remarkable achievement even in that context as, as much as anything. But he says that we should be looking at the current crisis that Brexit has thrust upon us maybe as a bit of an opportunity. And in particular, he calls upon the British government to take a leadership role here. Yes, I, I think... Duncan is picking away at the difficulties we've got with the Good Friday Agreement, that actually we can't assume it's a once and for all settlement of the situation here. Things have changed, the demography has changed, and that's one of the things that we talk about in the conversation is the fact that the Good Friday Agreement assumes basically two communities, whereas actually what we have in Northern Ireland today is a much more complex demographics than we had at the time of the Good Friday Agreement. And even at the time of the Good Friday Agreement, I mean, for example, Eamon McCann always used to point out that the settlement in the, within the Assembly actually solidified that uh, division within our society. And it's a point that the Green Party has always made and the Alliance Party, to a lesser extent, have always made in the Assembly as well, which is they don't choose to identify as either unionist nor Republican stroke nationalist and actually that doesn't the, the settlement of the Good Friday Agreement doesn't reflect the complexities of our society. Yeah, and look, let's hear the chat we we don't know because he goes under that and a, a lot uh, more stuff as well. Should point out too that there's a couple of glitches in this recording, but just bear with it. That's working through COVID. Everything's done on Zoom. These things happen. We don't miss a lot with it, but bear with it. So here's here's a conversation we don't know. So thanks very much, Duncan, for doing this. Uh, we had, as you know, a previous podcast series, and one of the suggestions there was that really in order to deal with the past, and I don't mean the, the criminality, the, the conflict of the past, I'm talking about the political context of the past, that actually there should be apologies, apologies on behalf of political parties, perhaps similar to the way that David Cameron apologized on behalf of previous administrations for Bloody Sunday. Do you think there's a role for political leaders here to apologise on behalf of their parties for past events? Would that help us move on? 
I think um, it, it, there probably is, although part of me says that first of all, you have to work out where you're going before you apologize. In other words, that there has to be um, a framework for the future in which apologies make sense. In other words, that apologies on their own are kind of abstract things um, for what end. And I think people who are being asked to give them quite often respond by saying, well, it won't make any difference and you'll still be in the same place and you won't believe them. And it's just a technical exercise. I think if there is a, uh, if you get to the point where there's a change where people say, actually, we have to move in a different direction. And in the light of that, uh, what's happened in the past, clearly we need to create more genuine distance between that and ourselves. Then there may be a role for something like apologies, or at least something which makes really clear that there is not any continuity between the position in the past and the position in the future. Um, and one of the other interviews I've done for this series was with uh, Simon Hoare, the, the, the chair of the Northern Ireland Affairs Select Committee in Westminster. And he said it's fundamentally about how you build trust. So yeah. perhaps that's the big question. How do we build trust between political parties uh, on behalf of communities that do not trust each other even after all these years? Yeah, and I think um, maybe there is a bit of work which we never really did. Uh, in, in that kind of depth that you're talking about now, um, about what would it take for me to trust you? In other words, we did talk about that, I think, in terms of negotiations. So there were kind of short-term actions which need to be taken, you know, um, and, you know, how did we get to talks? Well, there were various choreography around that. But trust to actually run a future together is uh, of a different quality than just trust to get into talks and negotiations. And I think that um, there is clearly still no very little trust in Northern Ireland uh, about uh, placing power in the hands of other people. That if you were to place power in your hands, you'd still be back where you were. It would be used by one group to either subordinate, certainly, but certainly and discriminate against another. And so uh, in that sense, I think we probably have to acknowledge that this remains a massive issue. Trust um, in the sense that I am willing to uh, assume that if power goes in your hands, my fundamental interest will not be totally destroyed, uh, needs to be uh, talked about. And it is a serious issue because we're running a, a system which tries to run on the basis that trust isn't necessary. We just need to distribute power. And I'm not absolutely, I'm just convinced that that's not working. Constantly short circuits on all these issues. I mean, that's very perceptive and very helpful, Duncan, because, in fact, the comment about the need for an apology for the past came from Sophie Long, from the associated in the past, at least with the Progressive Unionist Party. And, and it was in the context very much of her saying that the questioner was how you trust people, how you trust others, how you trust them not to do perhaps what they've done in the past if they had the opportunity to do it again or if they felt they had the need to do it again. And perhaps, astonishingly, even after all these years after the Good Friday Agreement, after all the years beyond the ceasefires, that perhaps we still haven't got to that place. No, and I think um, we haven't worked really on this issue um, enough because, for example, you know, it's very clear that every time we um, reach an impasse, 
we go back to the kind of what aboutry of and throwing past incidents and past behaviours. There was one just last week um, where the chief constable of the police was seen with uh, Harry Maguire, who's the head of the Community Restorative Justice Ireland, in a photograph. And it caused a minor stir on Twitter, as Junior said, he shouldn't be seen with him because he has a record in the troubles uh, around the killing of the corporals and that this was uh, the wrong kind of image for the police to be giving because it associated themselves with the unrepentant IRA. Now, the other side of that is that Harry Maguire is head of Community Restorative Justice Ireland, which is a, a formally constituted organisation under the criminal justice system, works with the police, represents actually some of the biggest changes that have happened on the criminal justice side, on the Republican side, and uh, has therefore been one of the people who's moved furthest and longest. And to be seen with the chief constable in a, in a photograph is a remarkable change. And I think that we haven't resolved that question. It is still operating. We need to uh, make clear that, in my view, these, these moves are required and necessary. But they don't represent a continuity with the past. They represent something that's a, a real change with the past. So how that happens and who apologizes to who, there's so much even in that one incident for me that uh, the, whole, the whole justice system still operates under that kind of question mark. And uh, you know we can't afford for the justice system to be operating under that kind of question mark in perpetuity. So it seems to me to be the apology question is, can't be avoided. I don't think it'd be done too cheaply. I don't think we should just say any old apology will do. I think we'd have to do a lot of work and it would have to be within a wider framework of agreement to move forward. But yes, there is some role about saying the past is not the future. We have to create something which allows us to move to that place. So what is the framework for building trust? Oh, well, of course you have a, uh, uh, you know, I think the agreement um, was a, remarkable effort to try to do so, if I'm honest with you. I think it tried to say, you know, here are some of the institutions which might begin to work, which taken together might, you know, at least reduce people's fears because there's enough checks and balances built into them. Second of all, it is a framework which um, says that Britishness and Irishness, whatever those mean, but they, they, they have to be somehow or other held intention that there is not a question of one eliminating the other anymore. It has to be a question of something with a, a degree of self-selection, but also with recognition that these things are going to be continuous parts of people's identity for ongoingly. And thirdly, that, the, that equality and human rights as frameworks are the only basis we have for legal, for the legal order that we have to have. So these kind of things to me seem to be really important. Um, and then I suppose the agreement leaves a gap because it doesn't talk about the past and it says, and now you take that and use that as a framework. And the implicit thing for me is that, that, that they would then work through to see um, that given this potential, there would be a, uh, a way to talk about the past from a different place. And I have to say, I think that so far it's been a potential vehicle which hasn't fully realized itself. That's not to say there haven't been moments. There haven't been moments where people have done things. People have made small gestures in sport and then even, for example, in the, the killing of uh, 
some police officers' role in care, for example. I think those kind of those were genuine moments of change, and there's still possibilities. But there's no doubt in my mind that um, as we are sitting in 2021, Brexit has significantly weakened uh, the level of trust that existed that Britishness and Irishness were on the same page in Northern Ireland, that there was something which allowed everybody to believe that whatever the political solution, it would try to accommodate both and try to ensure that there was a minimum of treatment uh, within that. And I think that by putting the border back on the table at that level, the sponsors of the agreement have made trust really, really difficult. So they've shown that, you know, it's quite possible that even people who sign it and get a lot of international prestige from it can walk away. So I think we are left with trying to think now again, okay, so this issue is back on the table. Um, because if we don't get it back on the table, the answer is mistrust. And once you get mistrust, then what you get is people taking, you know, a preemptive action. And once preemptive action comes back on the table, it's not even retaliatory. It starts a retaliatory cycle in anticipation of, of, of some kind of revenge cycle. So you're, you're into problems. So yeah, I don't want to be overly happy, uh, you know, happy clappy about it, but I do want to say the issue has never been more important. I mean, perhaps one could conclude that we are now sufficiently far away from the Good Friday Agreement that deliberate ambiguities that were in the agreement can now be pulled away at by people like a loose thread. And perhaps that creates a, a particular risk, particularly in the context of Brexit, because you have people on both sides of the argument saying, concluding that Brexit is creating a situation that, underpin, that undermines the principles of the, the Good Friday Agreement. I think, um during the period between the referendum and the final Brexit that we got, I, I, I wrote in a piece in one of the Irish papers that that actually I would hope that alongside the discussions on the economic future, there would be room for an Irish, um, if you like, pillar of the negotiations that they could actually accept that the specifics of our need for something which was between Ireland and Britain as a mechanism to allow us to talk about these things um, meant that they had to take this very seriously and it didn't happen. And my current view would be that uh, like everything, a uh, potential crisis is also an opportunity. If there was some kind of uh, long thinking or even medium thinking in the British government, I think that it would be strongly in their advantage now to, uh, to look at exactly what you said. How do we update the, if you like, the Good Friday Agreement for the current context we're in to ensure that the reasons why it was put into place are now both addressed from the perspective of time, in other words, the 22 years that we've had it, but also for political context. Because to pretend that the political context which produced the agreement, which was effectively the high point of Blairite idealism, um, because it was all to do with human rights, it was all to do with constitutional reform, it was all to do with uh, re-establishing a policing service, you know, on international principles, it was all to do with equality. That was the kind of early years of the Blair government. Um, is not now. It really, and it would be in our interest actually to call a review, not to destroy it, but to ensure that the purposes that it's talking about actually are given their proper place and addressed as far as they can be. Whether there's the bandwidth in governments for this, I very much doubt. But nevertheless, it is the level of engagement that I personally would like to see. 
Well, there's another element, isn't there, Duncan, where the Good Friday Agreement was a different time and place than where we are now, which is the demographics, because at the time there was a perception that there were two communities in Northern Ireland. Since then, support for the Catholic Church in the South hasn't perhaps collapsed, but it's certainly changed. And we have a third force, a third section of the community in the North of people that wouldn't call themselves either Catholics or Protestants, wouldn't necessarily call themselves either nationalists or unionists. And those were not included really in the Good Friday Agreement and are not included as part of the Stormont Assembly's workings, where you identify one side or the other. Consequently, you have the problems with the petition of concern, etc. So is that another reason why we need to look again at the, at the framework? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, some of these, as you say, the demographics are are very fluid now, very fluid in, our, in the situation. What was two communities is, is much more complicated than, I mean, in some sense it always was, but it's really crystallized now. I think um, that there was an assumption that, you know, the border in the end wasn't going to be mobile very quickly. It would, it would move in, in blocks. It's not, it's not, that's not how it's working. Uh, the petition of concern has created, paradoxically, um, social issues, which have been then used through the petition of concern, which was never designed for, the, for, for those social issues. And then the positions on those social issues, I think, are starting to bite back on the parties which used the petition of concern. So uh, in practice, the DUP has been the party which has used the petition of current concern overwhelmingly particularly on social issues. Uh, and they found themselves isolated in the wider conversation in part, and the growth of that central group in part has been because of the way the DUP has used those petitions of concern because it has created a group of people who may or may not be nationalists, but they're certainly uh, not happy with the way the petition of concern has used. And that has created this much bigger group in the middle who are much less happy. So as, as I say, I think that you know, uh, one of the weaknesses of the agreement, uh, even 22 years ago, which some people observed at the time, was that once it was signed, there was nothing holding anybody to account for implementing it. And so the agreement you got was whatever the political parties thereafter could agree, uh, up to and including St Andrew's Agreement, which I suppose changed uh, several aspects of the of the agreement without further discussion. But the, uh, the point being that review... Um, at the moment seems to depend on, on the agreement of the parties rather than, you know, we are in a changing situation and actually we need to update this all the time. Uh, we need to have certain, maybe it's 10 year reviews of, of, of the workings of the institutions, which allow at least the conversations to be put onto the table and for some decisions to be made by all of the parties. Because as you say, uh, 22 years um, without change in a very changed situation leaves you with potentially uh, a loss of legitimacy. So that's actually really important to deal with, yeah. And, and you have got, on the one hand, you've got significant changes in the demographics of Northern Ireland in that period. But on the other hand, there seems to be very little change fundamentally in the role of paramilitaries within our society. And there had been an assumption in the Good Friday Agreement that the paramilitaries would, would fade away, disappear, whereas in fact, they've become more attached to criminality, less attached to political ideology, but they are still there and the approach of buying off paramilitary groups 
has simply embedded them within our society rather than make them disappear. I think that's a, a really big issue um, that, that, you know, the continued reality of um, that armed groups are, are, are somehow quasi-legitimate <laughs> and the, the failure to kind of finally take that out of the equation um, is actually the, the core of the political failure of, of the agreement, which is that the critical political uh, statement in the agreement was that all political disputes, no matter what, will be resolved peacefully in the future. And while there's no doubt that it made huge steps in what was there before um, 1998, and I don't think anybody says that, there is this deeply embedded um, reality of, and I don't want to say it's tolerance, but it's almost acceptance of that there will always be some people in this community who will uh, claim a legitimacy for violence. And then behind that legitimacy, you can build all sorts of, uh, you know, community coercion. You can build all sorts of criminal empires. You can do all sorts of things. And the truth is that, as you say, um, we didn't build a bridge for paramilitaries to move over. We somehow built a framework for paramilitary organizations to sustain and re reconstitute themselves. And that that's not that wasn't the intention at all. So we again, you're right, if we don't go away from that, the risk that there are alternatives to politics um, remains in this community. In other words, people are are in politics for as long or democratic politics for as long as they are, and if they don't like it, they'll resort to something else. I mean that is what marks Northern Ireland out. I mean there's nowhere else in these islands or probably in Europe where people say, well, you can, you know, uh, we can always go back to something else or we will, you know, if we don't like the IRC border, we'll do X. If we don't like the, uh, you know, the, the border, the other border, we'll do X. You know, that, that's not really an option. <laughs> Shouldn't be an so option. how do we move to where we need to move? Who has got the, the standing, the status to actually institute a, a, a different situation. I mean, I suppose if Julian Smith is still Secretary of State that he could, Brandon Lewis does not have the um, respect of the political parties, probably either of the main political parties to, to step into that role. Uh, the Irish government would clearly not be accepted. Perhaps Biden would, but the indications are that unionists don't really find Biden an acceptable uh, individual in terms of the, the political context. So who, so who could stimulate that conversation, not least given the fact that the DUP, of course, was, was never signatories to the original Good Friday Agreement. Well, for me, um, first of all, I, I, this, my, my current pessimism is to do with the, that question, which is the kind of blankness that you get when you ask that question. And my feeling, therefore, that at the moment we're still in a holding place. It's about holding what you have rather than trying to prepare for the, the moment where that becomes possible again. And that while that's really difficult, I think a part of, if I'm really honest with you, I think um, that is my current kind of question mark. So one. Number two, um, I think locally, um, the the answer of is is there may need to be a further shake up in the in the in the political weights to make everybody know they're in a fluid situation rather than a holding situation. So it may be that, and and of course I would say this, and I don't actually mean it in a party political way, that unless 
that that more votes for the Alliance Party might be quite important here because <laughs> you have to change the or the political framework. You know, the, the consciousness of the parties that they that they want this and that all parties. And that doesn't mean they should take over, but somehow or other there's maybe it is some kind of challenge internally. The second one is the British government, if I'm really honest with you, for me, if I'm, uh, is I, I think the current British government is, uh, regards Northern Ireland as a, as a, as a collateral, as a make weight, to something that they deal with uh, as a secondary consideration. Now that is, in my view, incredibly short-sighted, and they're finding that now with the protocol, because as, as it comes back, it's kind of eating them back in and eating them back into the situation and Northern Ireland kind of clings to them like a, like a limpet. <laughs> but there needs to be in London an understanding that sorting out Northern Ireland is an interest. And then after that, you can build the coalition that's big enough and have the person who's the honest broker. Because it strikes me that the agreement became possible after the Anglo-Irish agreement because there were, char there were lines open between Dublin and London. Dublin and London were able to build a minimum of, of, of consensus around how you should approach this. You could bring in external international actors to, to and support. So you could bring a Clinton in, you could bring uh, money from the European Union at that point uh, into Northern Ireland. Uh, you could create an international coalition which at least had sufficient uh, clout. Parties to sit down, and you needed people to talk in paramilitary terms, and you needed to actually deal with the real situation inside the north, and 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 rebalance the political institutions north and south, and so on. But you you do need a partner. There's no way to do this without a British partner. So my question in my head is: At what point does that click? Uh, who can who can influence? And it may be that Biden's role is less uh, as an honest broker in Northern Ireland than as a persuader of London, that it's in their interest to turn their attention to the to the Irish situation and to, to do something proactive um, in conjunction probably with Dublin, to be honest, they have to find a way back into that kind of relationship. So, because otherwise, all I can see is a seesaw in which we're back into winning influence over, as you say, Brandon Lewis, uh, that becomes the issue. So a Secretary of State even who got that, and who began to argue for that within the British government would be very useful. Um, but as you say, I mean, I've been feeling for some years that the only way that the parties in Northern Ireland can ever move forward is through an international intermediary, that they're incapable of doing it without assistance from elsewhere. But I, I was speaking, as I say, to Simon Hoare a few days ago, and the argument he put forward is that you have to start from the end and work back and say, where is it we want to get to? And then we work out how we achieve that. But the problem is that given the major priority of Sinn Féin is to achieve Irish unity and the major objective of the DUP is to avoid Irish unity and to retain the uh, very close linkage with London, it's difficult to see how you can reach that endpoint and work back. Well, I mean, it is the inversion of what the agreement was about. The agreement was the opposite. The agreement actually was uh, that Dublin and London gradually, it took a while, uh, from 85 to the uh, Downing Street Declaration in 93 to the agreement in 98, uh, developed essentially a 
consensus, it wasn't an absolute consensus, but it was a fairly strong consensus on framework documents and all sorts of things like this and on uh, what the fundamentals were. They did rely, as you say, entirely on things like human rights law. Uh, they relied on international standards. <laughs> they, they, they relied on, on, on that, but the heavy lifting was probably done there. They, the, the negotiations involved engagement with local parties to work through what those kind of frameworks would look like at local level. And gradually the pressure became on both Sinn Féin and the DUP. Because Sinn Féin and the DUP have always believed in those things. I've always believed in those things. That's none of that's new. United shouldn't been believe in United Ireland. Well, there you go. Uh, the DUP believe in as unionist a, a, a polity in Northern Ireland as they can achieve. Uh, absolutely. I mean, so none of that's new. The question was, what? How was it possible to get movement into that such that you could even provide twenty years of a of a a project? And you know, uh, everybody knew globally this agreement was pretty, pretty remarkable uh, as an achievement to actually do that. Because if you talked in the 1970s and 80s about whether that was ever going to be possible, uh, we were really being presented with binary options um, in the context of, yeah, all but a civil war. Uh, so you had, um, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we have come some way and we do know, I think, that's, I think, the frustrating part is we know what the content of some of this is. None, a very little of this is new. The innovative, most of the world looks to the Good Friday process, not necessarily as a political success, but for the content of what, a, what an agreement would look like. <laughs> so my frustration at the moment and my concern, if I'm honest with you, is um, drift, absolute drift in the consciousness of, first of all, the governments. Uh, and particularly the British government, in what it will take, what it takes to create stability in Ireland. And I, I, if I was with Simon Hoare, I'd say to him, this is not, unionism will not move if they believe that the, the fr their framework of choices includes not talking to Irish nationalism in a serious way. As if they can see an option which avoids doing that, they, they tend to take it. And the only people who can block that road are the British government who understands that security in Ireland requires a genuine compact with Irish nationalism. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds, Duncan, as if part of what you're saying is that all the players need to be reminded just how remarkable the Good Friday Agreement was and objectively just how amazing the situation we are in today compared with the early 90s and the 80s and the 70s and even the 60s and perhaps just a dose of realism uh, and people thinking more about what's been achieved would help us move forward but even yeah, that would, I, I think that plus plus what we've already talked about which is that we that we tried to do it without it if you like we treated the agreement as a ceiling rather than as a floor on which to do the rest of our business. And so the agreement has always been something you've kind of pulled people into kicking and screaming, particularly uh, people who saw, oh, we're not getting our United Ireland or we're not getting our British-only state. Yeah, too right. Uh, the question is whether that's a defeat, because within a political, strictly political framework and within some of the movements, of course, it is, is challenged that you've sold out. It's a sellout deal. And so... Uh, 
but the, the, for me, and I really be honest about this, I think the potential of looking for a way to uh, accommodate those kind of uh, senses of self uh, within a framework which is big enough and plural enough to actually enable that um, and then to generate something quite interesting, a project, a post-imperial project, which is uh, not based on simply uh, that kind of revenge cycle, but is actually based on trying to create something constructive. Um, is that's, that's, that's the question. How do you unlock the potential of the agreement uh, properly? And that's where you get to your discussion about renegotiation. That's where you get to your discussion about, right, this agreement exists and has a certain achievements, but it has certain problems and significant feelings, and we need to get there. I mean, I do wonder who is John Hume? <laughs> and I don't mean to raise him up to divine status, but I do mean somebody who doggedly pursued a notion that we have to get some kind of new framework with him. We have to reframe the conversation. Um, and that was in, in our terms, you know, Hume's achievement um, was to persuade the governments that they needed to reframe the, the conversation uh, because uh, as a zero-sum game, it was going nowhere. So uh, his achievement was to, 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 to get, not necessarily to get the answer, because I'm not sure it was one person's answer, but I am convinced that it did take somebody to say, within the zero-sum framework, it doesn't work. Northern I mean, Fintan O'Toole put it as, if the, quest, the only question in Northern Ireland is where the border goes, there are no good answers. <laughs> you know, um, so his Hume's achievement was to say, yeah, that's not, that can't be the only question. The question is given that we can't resolve that question, how do we create a political framework which can accommodate people as best as possible within that? And now we've had 20 years of trying to work it through and we know some of the really serious drawbacks of that. And so it would be time given Brexit and given the kind of fundamental change in the nature of the border that has now happened, we need to recalibrate that. Thank you, Duncan. This has all been incredibly stimulating and interesting. I had a list of about 20 questions and we didn't get on to the second one, but we have run out of time. And actually what you've given me is far more than I could have hoped for. So thank you very much indeed, Duncan. That's much appreciated. Great. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Okay. Um, as mentioned at the start, a really interesting conversation there. Paul, who can change things then? Duncan's saying there's a, a bit of pessimism or he feels a bit of pessimism about where we are at the minute and how we're going to collectively, positively move forward on a, on a political sense here. What do, you, what do you think? And he's calling on the British government, as we said earlier. What do, what do you see the way forward here? I mean, I think what Duncan is saying is that we need a new culture of political leaders here. We need to leave the, 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 the past behind in terms of the attitude of the political system. Um, but the concern that I've had really, I think, for, for many years is that it feels as if the political system and the political parties within Northern Ireland can't necessarily ever resolve our problems themselves unless they have significant outside help. Now, it was interesting that the new decade, new approach was achieved through the very active involvement of Julian Smith and Simon Coveney. And you either, I think, need the, that dual approach from the two governments led by people who are respected by all the political players here, or else you need an external broker 
such as someone provided by the United States, uh, as has happened in the past. And the problem we have now is that Brandon Lewis, whatever you think about him, does not have the same level of respect that Julian Smith did across the political system. And of course, from the unionist point of view, the issues around the protocol have undermined their confidence in the British government, whereas the whole Brexit project has undermined confidence from the nationalists and Republicans in the British government. Um, and because of that, that undermines confidence by Eunice in the role of the Irish government in anything. So the question is, do we need somebody else to come in? And who can it be? Is there uh, an appetite by Joe Biden as the new president of the United States to play that brokerage role, to appoint a new envoy to Northern Ireland to, to help the political parties achieve progress? And would that role be respected by unionists, given the criticisms that some of them, in particular Mr. May Wilson, have had of the of Joe Biden's administration? Okay. And I like the analogy that Duncan had about the Good Friday Agreement, where it was seen as the achievement that we were working towards, rather than the you know the ceiling to be achieved, rather than the floor to be starting from. Um, and I think he he would like to see the Good Friday Agreement maybe renegotiated on a they reflect the current political reality and the the current crisis that we are currently facing through Brexit and other things. Yeah, clearly the, the, the situation has changed. I mean, one of the ironies is that the DUP talks repeatedly about protecting the Good Friday Agreement, whereas actually the Ulster Unionist Party broke apart with some of its leaders moving to the DUP because the DUP could not accept the Good Friday Agreement and that fractured unionism. And we now have the situation where the DUP in particular is arguing for the protection of the Good Friday Agreement. So there are certainly tensions there around the Good Friday Agreement. And let's face it, the Good Friday Agreement was, was predicated on the assumption that we would have both the UK and the Republic of Ireland as continuing members of the European Union. And whatever you feel about whether the protocol is a breach of the Good Friday Agreement or whether a land border would be a breach of the Good Friday Agreement, the fundamental tension is that Brexit undermines the assumptions behind the Good Friday Agreement. So, you know, there's certainly a lot to be said for looking at it again, saying there are new demographics here. But the problem always is that if you unpick it, if you change it, will you know, what else comes to pieces? Yeah. Okay. Well, loads of challenges there. Loads and loads of big challenges. So, Paul, thank you for taking the time to, to meet with Duncan and obviously thanks to Duncan as well. That's it for episode two of, of this uh, Forward Together podcast. Thanks to our funders, um, the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland and to everyone that's involved. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.